Hi everyone, and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host, Maggie. This week, we're continuing to dive deeper into the strangeness that has surrounded Shelley Miscavige since even before the last time that she was seen in public. It's difficult to truly nail down a term to describe what it is that happened to Shelley, the woman who once carried the title of First Lady of Scientology. What led a fervently passionate, energetic young woman down a path that saw her react to her mother's mysterious death as nothing more than an opportunity to exploit an enemy organization? Why did a woman described as feisty and on par with her husband, the leader of the church, David Miscavige, suddenly shift into a meek, cowed, subdued version of herself? How has an entire organization simply forgotten this higher priestess of its highest ranks, seemingly pretending as if she never existed? What has Scientology done to and done with Shelley Miscavige? These are only some of the questions that we'll be asking today as we explore how Scientology transformed under the thumb of David Miscavige, the shocking practices that became de rigueur with his blessing, and the mysterious events that, on the surface, seem like exceptions. Until you recognize that coordinated disappearances and calculated silencings are as much as part of Scientology's doctrine as any of its far-fetched space opera teachings L. Ron Hubbard created in a rum-soaked haze. It's an environment that anyone could get caught up in, given the insidious nature that works its way, its cult-like grip into someone's mind. But why and how is it that Shelley Miscavige has apparently been lost to it, lost within Scientology like it's some densely treacherous forest designed to trip up anyone looking for a way out? With all that said, let's get ready to get dark as hell. Somewhere along the way of the Miscavige marriage, there was a shift, a shift noticeable to a number of people. Somewhere along the way, Shelley had transitioned from David Miscavige's wife to David's employee. Sure, she was still the COB assistant, the right-hand woman to Miscavige's COB role, with a rather shadowy woman named Larisse Liu stuck in Brock, serving as his left hand. Miscavige was rarely alone, surrounded by his most fervent supporters within their high-ranking roles and perennially ready rounds of agreement to anything he said. Many of these figures happened to be young women, beautiful and ready to serve Scientology, and by extension, Miscavige. As Hubbard's protege, it was no surprise to anyone that Miscavige followed in his mentor's steps with this particular practice. Whispers began that the two had begun sleeping in separate bedrooms, that their relationship had taken a turn into something resembling more workplace than bedroom. Throughout the years, however, 
no one, inside or outside of the church, has ever been able to concretely confirm if there was ever any adultery committed by Miscavige. Speaking to Vanity Fair, a former Scientologist, Mark Headley, recounted his experience with the couple who he worked closely with while he was still with the church. Quote, I never, ever, ever saw them kiss. I was there for 15 years, so I had plenty of opportunities to witness them together and never, ever saw them affectionate with each other. I'm talking about in a room with four other people, informal. We're all just chatting and he isn't touching her. A former Sea Org member, Tom DeVoit, shared similar memories with Vanity Fair. Quote, odd, odd couple. There was obviously a working relationship, but odd. I don't think I once saw Miscavige hug or kiss or anything, Shelley. I spent a lot of time with them. There was no real affection. Former insiders shared that it seemed as if Shelley turned any insecurities that she had about her relationship and the perceived competition for Miscavige's attention inward, as she began following a strict, all-natural diet and went to great pains to style her hair, her makeup, and her clothes. It's a common enough practice during times of stress and strife. You can't control what's happening around you, so why not try to control these things going on inside of you? Maybe that was why she began so painstakingly to focus on her role as COB assistant. Maybe that was why she began to focus so much on the responsibility in her role that was most important to Miscavige. And that responsibility, that was Tom Cruise. And it's about time that we talk about the unofficial ambassador of Scientology to the world. Tom Cruise came to Scientology the way most people do, through someone in his life. It's unclear what year he first started to dabble with Dianetics, but he was introduced to Scientology by way of his first wife, Mimi Rogers, sometime during their three-year marriage, which took place from 1987 to 1990. It was something that Cruz seemed to take to and take to quickly. Having struggled with dyslexia for most of his life, Cruz found that he suddenly became cured of the affliction after he started studying within the church. As his star rose, so too did his rank, and the weight of that rank rise within Scientology. Mark Headley told Vanity Fair that, quote, Dave Miscavige told us in a meeting that if he could, he'd make Tom Cruise Inspector General, second in command, that if he weren't Tom Cruise the actor, he would be the number two. As the pseudo second in command in any regard, it Shouldn't be a surprise then that one of Shelley's most important COB tasks, a task that was deemed crucial to the success of Scientology as the 90s began, was, quote, handling Tom Cruise. Though Cruise was married to Mimi Rogers when he entered the Church of Scientology, it was Mimi who exited and exited the marriage. By early 1990, the two had filed for divorce, but before 1990 was over, Cruz had already remarried, this time to Nicole Kidman, his co-star in the film Days of Thunder that they had worked on throughout the year. 
Rumors have abounded that Mimi was forced out of the marriage on twofold orders from Miscavige. One of them, according to Tony Ortega, an investigative reporter who is seen as one of, if not the, leading journalistic source on all things Scientology, said, quote, Miscavige's concern was that Mimi was the daughter of this major squirrel, someone who leaves the Church of Scientology, but continues to do Scientology on their own. And her dad had started his own church. And secondly, because Cruz had indicated that he wanted to pursue Nicole instead. On Christmas Eve, 1990, Cruz got his holiday wish with a wedding to Nicole, and she was brought into the church. Tony Ortega spoke to the Daily Beast and said, quote, she did Scientology courses. She was really dedicated. I talked to her auditor, Bruce Hines, and she got all the way up to OT2 in two years. That means that she was doing Scientology pretty much full time for two straight years. Dedicated though she may have been at first, the church, meaning Miscavige, wasn't so sure. Initially, he had wanted to utilize Nicole as a means to separate Cruz from Mimi Rogers and thought a hot new girlfriend would do the trick. It was simply a bonus that Cruz had already had his co-star in mind. What the church didn't count on, though, was Cruz's characteristic intensity expanding over his relationship with Nicole. Because, oh no, the church had never imagined that Cruz would marry her. Because there was a problem with Nicole, you see. And that problem was her father. Australian-born Nicole was raised in a staunchly Catholic family, which might have seemed like the real hurdle Miscavige needed to overcome with Golden Boy Tom's new love interest. The actual obstacle, though, was Nicole's father, Dr. Anthony Kidman. And what Dr. Kidman specialized in was psychology. Mike Rinder, the former Scientologist who speaks with a delightful Australian accent for anyone familiar with documentaries about the church, described the plight as such, quote, in the eyes of Scientology, not only is psychiatry and psychology the evil that has plagued mankind since the beginning of time and are the slave masters trying to enslave all of mankind, but anybody who sympathizes or agrees with them is also in the enemy camp and anyone who's been treated by them is in the enemy camp. Nicole always had this cloud hanging over her head. Though she may have been playing the role of dutiful Scientologist as a bid to make her new husband happy, Nicole couldn't put up the front for long. By 1992, her distaste for Cavage was enough to lead her to leaving the church for good. At the time, Cruz was the most well-known and recognized celebrity involved with the church giving John Travolta, who had been a Scientologist since 1975, a run for his money. But what did it mean for Scientology's biggest star and the optics for the church if that star's wife abandoned the Church of Scientology? At first, Nicole Kidman's disownment of the church didn't seem to phase Miscavige, and by extension, Shelley, Marty Rathbun, the Headleys, Mark Grinder, and other high-ranking officials. But as the saying goes, bad things come in threes. And the 1990s were going to prove that not just three bad things were in store for the Church of Scientology. Death had come for Scientology. 
and it first began cropping up at one of its most famous locations, the Fort Harrison Hotel. The FHH to this day, quote, serves as the flagship building of the Flagland Base, the Church of Scientology's spiritual headquarters in Clearwater, Florida. It's a stunning cream-colored fixture that stands tall into the Florida sky, capped with a rusty-hued stucco roof. It stretches 11 floors and has over 200 rooms, three different restaurants within it, a ballroom, and a swimming pool. A skywalk made of the same creamy white connects the hotel to the Flag Building, which is also owned by the church. The Flag Building is the largest building in the entire city of Clearwater and has a massive cross at the top of it, which looms above the city block the building sits on and is said to be visible throughout the entire Clearwater area. This building has close to 900 rooms, most of them dedicated to the nickname bestowed on the building, the Superpower Building, because this is the Scientologist establishment where one goes to tap into your 57 senses through a training known as the Superpower Rundown. The exact details of the Superpower Rundown have never been revealed, but in one of his writings, Hubbard described the process as such, quote, a super fantastic but confidential series of rundowns that can be done on anybody, whether Dianetics, clear or not, that puts the person into a fantastic shape, unleashing superpower of a Thetan. This means that puts Scientologists into a new realm of ability, enabling them to create a new world. It puts world clearing within reach of the future. This is a parallel rundown to Power in St. Hill, which is taken by the Dianetics Clear. It consists of 12 separate high-power rundowns, which are brand new and enter realms of the tech never before approached. Power is still very much in use on the grade chart, but is for those who didn't go clear on Dianetics. To say the aura around the two buildings is intense would probably be an understatement. The intensity, no doubt, was enough to get under the skin of any person. And perhaps... That's exactly what happened to Lisa McPherson. In 1994, Lisa McPherson was 35 years old and she had already been with the church for 18 years. That is to say, she had spent half of her life with the church already. She had had a turbulent childhood growing up. When she was 14, her brother died by suicide and her father struggled with alcoholism. Four years after losing her brother, she was introduced to Scientology by someone that she worked with and she felt that she had found a home. As Kristen Jeanette Myers put it during a 1998 CBS special, Lisa, quote, embraced the church as a surrogate family. Lisa quickly immersed herself into all that Scientology had to offer her. Her friend, Shirley Cage, remarked that, quote, she believed that the church was the most important thing in the world and that the good that it was doing was something she wanted to be a part of, and she dedicated herself immensely. She was so dedicated that she relocated from Dallas, Texas, out to Clearwater to further support the church through her job at AMC Publishing. AMC Publishing, it should be noted, was owned, operated, and staffed by Scientologists. All seemed well, or at least well enough that nothing of note was reported about Lisa's first year in Clearwater. However, in June of 1995, there was a blip on the radar. It's not clear what caused the examination to be held, but in June of that year, 
Lisa was forced to undergo a process called introspection rundown. An introspection rundown is a specialized form of auditing that, quote, is intended to handle a psychotic episode or complete mental breakdown. Introspection is defined for the purpose of this rundown as a condition where the person is looking into one's own mind, feelings, reactions. The result is the person is extroverted, no longer looking inward worriedly continuously without end. Some of the precise steps of the rundown, as Hubbard decreed them, look like this. Quote, the first step of the rundown is isolate the person wholly with all attendance completely muzzled, no speech. Auditing sessions are given frequently, otherwise the person is not spoken to. When it is obvious the person is out of his psychosis and up to the responsibility of living with others, his isolation is ended. To determine the end of isolation, the supervisor in charge of the person being isolated, test the person's condition by writing a note such as, Dear Joe, what can you guarantee me if you are let out of isolation? If Joe's answer shows continued irresponsibility, the supervisor must write back something along the lines of, Dear Joe, I'm sorry, but it is no go on coming out of isolation yet, including the reasons of why not. When it is obvious the person is out of his psychosis, his isolation is ended. All of that to say, Something had happened to lead Clearwater higher-ups to believe that Lisa was somehow mentally unwell or suffering some sort of mental health crisis. It has never been made clear what exactly led to her summer of 1995 rundown. What's interesting, though, is that just months later, in September 1995, Lisa reached the zenith of Scientology, being declared clear. After five years and over $175,000, Lisa was publicly celebrated for her clear status at the Fort Harrison Hotel. It was an honor, a true cause for celebration. And yet, it didn't last long. On November 18th, 1995, just before 6 p.m., Lisa was involved in a car accident, one so minor a fender bender that the paramedics who arrived on the scene claimed that they mostly left her alone since they had deemed her ambulatory, meaning that she was up and walking around on her own without any problems. The problem started, though, when Lisa started to remove her clothing as she stood on the side of the road in full view of passing motorists and the bewildered paramedics. Bonnie Portolano was one of the paramedics on the scene and remembered her partner nudging her and saying, quote, and he says, you're never going to guess what she's doing, speaking of Lisa. And I said, what? And he said, she's taking off her clothes. And it was like a few seconds later, she came walking down the side of our ambulance without a stitch on. As I went to get her, you know, I said, Lisa, Lisa, you know, why did you take your clothes off? And it was Lisa's answer that changed the paramedics' minds about how much help the woman before them actually needed. According to Bonnie Portolano, she said, quote, I wanted people to think I was crazy, so then I could get some help. Lisa was transported to Morton Plant Hospital in Clearwater, where it was recommended that she remain for psychiatric evaluation and counseling overnight. However, word had apparently reached the Scientologist at the FHH because soon after Lisa arrived, so too did a number of church officials. Whatever they said to Lisa worked, because despite initially claiming that she wanted help, 
She soon told the doctors at Morton Plant that she did not want psychiatric treatment, that she didn't believe in it, and she signed herself out against doctor's advice. Instead, she returned to the Fort Harrison Hotel where Janice Johnson, a high-ranking Scientologist who claimed to be a medical professional despite not having the proper credentials, would be overseeing her medical care. 17 days later, Lisa McPherson emerged from the hotel during the afternoon of December 5th and was driven 40 minutes outside of Clearwater to Newport Ritchie in order to be seen by a Scientologist ER doctor, David Minkoff. As they drove, the group passed four other hospitals. By the time Lisa arrived to be seen by Minkoff, the Tampa Bay reports that she was, quote, Lisa was transported to Morton Plant Hospital in Clearwater, where it was recommended that she remain for psychiatric evaluation and counseling. However, word had apparently reached the Scientologist at the FHH because soon after Lisa arrived, so too did a number of church officials. Whatever they said to Lisa worked because despite initially claiming that she wanted help, she soon told the doctors at Morton Plant that she did not want psychiatric treatment, that she didn't believe in it and signed herself out against doctor's advice. Instead, she returned to the Fort Harrison Hotel where Janice Johnson, a high-ranking Scientologist who claimed to be a medical professional, despite not having the proper credentials, would be overseeing her medical care. 17 days later, Lisa McPherson emerged from the hotel during the afternoon of December 5th, and she was driven 40 minutes outside of Clearwater to Newport Ritchie in order to be seen by a Scientologist ER doctor, David Minkoff. As the group drove, they passed four other hospitals. By the time Lisa arrived to be seen by Minkoff, the Tampa Bay Times reported that she was, quote, not breathing, had no heartbeat, and was gaunt, bruised, and unkempt. Almost immediately, she was pronounced dead. Despite the strange circumstances of her death, the police were not alerted. No report was filed, and there wasn't even an obituary placed in the paper to mark her passing. The Clearwater Scientologists were doing their very best to erase Lisa McPherson, to make it seem as if she had simply disappeared within the walls of their hotel. 11 days later, though, the news leaked. A Scientologist, after checking herself out of the hospital against medical advice, wound up dead in bizarre and unsettling circumstances. Circumstances that were only compounded by the church's silence on the issue. The only things that we know about what took place inside the Fort Harrison Hotel during those 17 days in the winter of 1996 are from incomplete logs that were kept by the so-called caretakers who were keeping watch over Lisa. Marty Rathbun later admitted to the Tampa Bay Times that he, quote, ordered the last two days of logs destroyed because he feared that they incriminated the church. When Lisa arrived back to the Fort Harrison, she was immediately placed into another introspection rundown and she was forced into isolation. During her next 17 days, these are only some of the behaviors noted in the partial logs that have been revealed to the public. On November 18th, 2.45 p.m., Lisa is talking since about 30 minutes. I created time 3 billion years ago and now I am dramatizing it since then. I am LRH and I didn't confront it because I didn't confront that power. I want to dance. I need my auditor. I need to confront my mom. 
November 19th. This afternoon, Lisa walked like a robot. What is new? If she starts talking, she talks and talks, then she stares at a spot. She also tries to push buttons on me, what she never did before. She says I am her and she is controlling my body. November 22nd. I went into the room and she was totally type three, blabbering, incoherent, nonstop, shaking, no warm clothes on, a bra top plus shorts plus shoes, no socks. She fell asleep for four hours, then got up. I finally chased her around the place 50 times and got on slacks, a t-shirt, jacket, socks, and shoes. She was like an ice cube. She talked incoherently hour after hour. She refused to eat and spit out everything she took. Her breath was foul. She looked like measles and chicken pox on her face. Had a fever to my touch. November 30th, 9.15 a.m. I got a small amount of the banana plus shake mixture into her and about an ounce of tea. She is much more physically strong this a.m. She sits up frequently and for long periods of time. Whereas yesterday, I only saw her set up once. She was lying on the floor, scooting around. She is using her legs to kick again. December 2nd, 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. I gave her four valerian root capsules, four orange thane, not positive of the name, haven't seen the bottle, but it is one of the herbal sleeping preparations and approximately six ounces of cow mag. We also cut her fingernails. This will reduce the risk of scratches to herself and us. She has scratches and abrasions all over her body on elbows and knees, and she has pressure sores. None of them are open and none of them look infected. The finances for her protein drinks ran out last night. I was in communication with the security guard who said the source of the money was Lisa's employer, and he thought that he could get more this morning. December 3rd, 1 a.m. to 1.30 a.m. Tried to feed her again, but wouldn't take anything. She thought we were psychos or other enemies who wanted to kill her. The people that Lisa claimed were, quote, psychos who wanted to kill her, seemingly eventually did. Lisa's family wasn't contacted until the next day. Speaking to the Tampa Tribune, her mother, Fannie McPherson, said a woman from the church simply called to say, quote, Lisa had become sick about noon the day of her death. She said that Lisa had fast-acting meningitis. I called later, and they said no. She had a bruise on her leg, and that's what caused the blood clot that went to her lung. Almost immediately, family and friends of Lisa knew that something was wrong. And the science backed up their feelings. The December 5 autopsy report, quote, identified McPherson's cause of death as a thromboembolism of the left pulmonary artery caused by bed rest and severe dehydration and ruled that the manner of death was undetermined. The report also identified multiple bruises and abrasion on the nose, lesions and insect bites that appeared consistent with that of a cockroach. The autopsy report was completed by medical examiner Joan Wood. Dr. Wood later elaborated on her findings saying, quote, the autopsy showed McPherson's condition had deteriorated slowly, going without fluids for five to 10 days. She was underweight, had cockroach bites, and she was comatose from 24 to 48 hours before she died. The church didn't like these assertions at all. They sued Wood several times and hired their own forensic experts to examine Wood's files, Dr. Michael Bodden and Dr. Cyril Wecht. They contradicted the initial autopsy findings stating, quote, we have concluded that McPherson died suddenly and unpredictably of a blood clot 
in her left lung that originated from a knee bruise she suffered in the minor car accident 17 days earlier. Wood was forced to conduct her own review of the review in 1999. And wouldn't you know it, following all of this pressure from the church, she changed the cause of death from undetermined to an accident. She traced McPherson's pulmonary embolism to her, quote, psychosis and the auto accident as major factors. By this time, the church had been embattled in a legal war with the McPherson family, who had brought a wrongful death lawsuit against the church in 1997. Of course, the church claimed that they had done nothing wrong during the 17-day period that Lisa was imprisoned in the Fort Harrison Hotel. But as the legal struggles waged on, and as the media scrutiny became more focused on what exactly had taken place within the mammoth Scientology establishment, as they always do, more secrets began to become uncovered. Because Lisa McPherson was not the first Scientologist to die under mysterious circumstances at the Fort Harrison Hotel. In December 1979, Josephus A. Havaneth arrived in Clearwater to receive counseling and had begun following a specific but secretive regimen of vitamins and minerals as prescribed by the church. He was a 45-year-old Dutch citizen a music teacher who had been living in Munich before traveling to Clearwater. Beyond those few facts, little else is known about Havaneth. On February 25, 1980, a maid at the hotel approached room 771, where Havaneth had been staying. There was allegedly a note on his door that alluded to the fact that he was sleeping and did not want to be disturbed. The only reason he was eventually disturbed was because other occupants of the hotel began to notice that the carpet outside of his hotel room was soaked straight through. When the room was eventually breached, a horrifying discovery was made. According to the St. Petersburg Times, quote, he was found by the maid lying dead in the bathtub. The water was so hot it had taken the skin off of his body. No one is certain when he died. An autopsy report lists his death as probable drowning but notes that his head was not underwater. Now I have seen the autopsy photos of what Havanet's body looked like after it was recovered, and they are easily some of the most disturbing images I have ever seen. Yet the church maintained that he had simply drowned in the bathtub, despite his head not being underwater, and despite the baffling fact of the water's boiling hot temperature. Of course, there are a number of other strange deaths that have haunted the Fort Harrison. As the St. Petersburg Time reported, there was Margaret Winkleman, 51, who walked fully clothed into Clearwater Bay and drowned herself in January, 1980, after she quit taking lithium and started taking vitamins and minerals recommended by the church. There was Peter E. Fry, 37, who was found floating in a Dunedin waterway in June, 1988, several days before the Church of Scientology reported him missing from his room at the Fort Harrison. There was a man named Harrybert Paff, 31, who died of an apparent seizure in the Fort Harrison Hotel in August 1988 after he quit taking medication that controlled his seizures and was placed instead on a program of vitamins and minerals. And then there was Carrie Slaughterbeck, 23, who was found dead in her Clearwater apartment in March 1997 after receiving nutritional counseling from a prominent cytologist who sells super blue green algae 
a dietary supplement. All throughout these various deaths that were becoming stranger and stranger, there is another phenomenon occurring at the Fort Harrison base. The St. Petersburg Times reported that in 1997, Clearwater police had started to become, quote, suspicious about the number of 911 calls that come from rooms at the Fort Harrison Hotel. Police respond to each call, only to be told most of the time by Scientology security guards that the call was a mistake. Police are not allowed to check individual rooms where the calls originated. In the past 11 months, 161 calls to 911 were made from rooms in the hotel, but each time Scientology security guards said there was no emergency. The church merely claimed that the calls were misdials from international guests attempting to place an outside call. And to that we say, sure, Jan. If nothing else was clear, what was apparent at the time was that the carefully crafted public image of Scientology was beginning to crack. And so too was its leader, David Miscavige. As the 1990s wore on and the new millennium began to make its approach, David Miscavige decided that there was only one thing to do to combat the public scrutiny and influx of negative PR that the church was rightfully receiving. And that was to get Tom Cruise firmly back within the church's clutches. In the late 90s, after Nicole Kidman had essentially defected from the church in 92, Cruise had slowly begun following his wife's lead and had started to distance himself from Scientology. In 1996, husband and wife had been cast as the lead roles in Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. And the movie, whose filming was based out of England, would go on to receive the Guinness World Record title for the longest constant movie shoot, quote, for over 15 months, a period that included an unbroken shoot of 46 weeks. Cruz hadn't as fully removed himself from the church as Nicole had. One might say that he had simply drifted because he was still in decently regular contact with Miscavige. But that contact became threatened during the Eyes Wide Shut shoot, when everyone on set was basically said to have become sequestered with the intensity required from the cast. Cruz slowly stopped, quote, checking in with Miscavige, as it had been described. And that didn't sit well with the COB. Mike Rinder, the Australian-born former church executive, further elaborated how the Eyes Wide Shut shoot in the late 90s was the impetus for Miscavige's unhappiness towards Cruz. Quote, when they went off the shoot Eyes Wide Shut, it drove Miscavige to distraction that Tom wasn't calling him. He was so pissed about that. At one point, we were in England for an event and Miscavige dispatched me to go see Leanne, Cruz's sister, also then publicist and a fellow Scientologist, to try and figure out what was going on with Tom and Nicole. I went up to London and met with Leanne at the Dorchester Hotel for afternoon tea to try and figure out what was going on. And she just said, oh no, they're just really busy and they have to do retakes on every shoot. This was the standard line that was being used to explain why Tom was no longer in touch with Miscavige and it was not a very satisfactory answer to him. It was during this period that Miscavige began his subterfuge-based assault on the Cruz-Kidman household, with one goal in mind, getting rid of Nicole Kidman. When Cruz stopped checking in with Miscavige on a regular basis, Miscavige decided that it was time to break up the marriage. Scientology executive Marty Rathbun said, 
in the 2015 HBO documentary, Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. Rathbun is quoted as saying then, quote, Miscavige really wanted to get Cruz back into the church, to being somebody that he could use to lure people into Scientology and increase his own status. Speaking to the Daily Beast, Rinder, quote, agreed that Miscavige had a strong reason for wanting to get Kidman out of Cruz's life. As soon as Nicole became in any way disaffected with Scientology or unwilling to continue, she became a liability in Miscavige's mind to Tom Cruise being a good Scientologist and promoting Scientology, shows she had to be gotten rid of. Eyes Wide Shut wrapped filming and was released in July of 1999. In February 2001, Cruise had filed for divorce from Nicole. It's unclear how exactly the church facilitated the divorce, but insiders share that a number of tactics were used to undermine the relationship and to turn Cruz against his wife. Rathbun claimed that he, quote, arranged through Scientology's consigliere to get a private investigator who physically installed a wiretap on her phone. And those tapes would come in and I'd forward them to David Miscavige. By all accounts, the most damaging blows were dealt through auditing sessions performed on Cruz. Those who were in the know of the plot to separate Cruz and Nicole have implied that the auditing sessions were orchestrated in such a way as to present Nicole as an SP, a suppressive person. And eventually, Cruz took the bait that Miscavige dangled in front of him, and he disconnected from Nicole. And he got custody of the couple's two adopted children in the process. It has been alluded to through various accounts of former executives that Isabella and Connor the children that Cruz and Nicole adopted together were also part of the plot to separate the couple. As the children were put through various trainings and courses meant to teach them how to identify SPs, namely their mother. Leah Remedy corroborated those claims to the Daily Beast, saying that executives, quote, used confidential Scientology counseling sessions to bring a wedge between Tom and his wife, Nicole, because Nicole didn't want to do Scientology anymore. She added that leader David Miscavige, quote, through Marty Rathbun, got rid of Nicole to get Tom closer to Scientology. Now that Nicole was gone and Cruz was fully back in the fold, the cycle of presenting Tom Cruise as the foremost ambassador of Scientology to the world began again. And the first step to solidifying that image, finding the next Mrs. Tom Cruise. In 2001, Tom began dating Vanilla Sky co-star Penelope Cruz about six months after he had divorced Nicole. The two dated for three years, but the influence of the church and Miscavige has long been suggested to have been part of the force that led to their 2004 breakup. According to Maureen Orth of Vanity Fair, even though Penelope did embrace Scientology at first and took a number of the educational courses, she eventually, quote, ran afoul of Miscavige, who dismissed her as a mere dilettante when it was learned that she was unwilling to forsake her Buddhist beliefs. That same year, the transformation of turning Tom Cruise into the ambassador of the church seemed to be at its peak. Tony Ortega shared that through extensive auditing sessions designed to, quote, pump him up, by 2004, they had turned Tom into the most gung-ho Scientologist in the world. And that's when Miscavige chose to recognize him for it. According to the Daily Beast, quote, in 2004, Miscavige awarded Cruz the church's first Freedom Medal of Valor at a gaudy Los Angeles ceremony, recognizing the Hollywood superstar for bringing greater freedom to mankind.
During the ceremony, the organization estimated that Cruz had proselytized to over a billion people through his various media and public appearances. Leo Remini claims that Cruz's image within the church is such that, quote, Scientologists are told that Tom Cruise is saving the world single-handedly, so he is considered a deity within Scientology. But how could Tom Cruise be this godlike figure in Scientology if he didn't have the beautiful romantic partner to round out the image Miss Scavage wanted him to present? As the number one Cruise handler, Shelley was up at bat once again. In the early 2000s, the worst of the PR seemed to be behind the Church of Scientology. They were coasting, they were cruising, and yes, maybe that is a jab at Tom Cruise's ridiculous name. By the fall of 2004, though, efforts had been ramped up throughout the entire organization to find Cruise his next love interest. The church had seemingly run through all of the actresses within its own ranks, and Cruise himself hadn't been able to sway any of his fellow Hollywood peers into a relationship with Scientology at its core. Sofia Vergara and Scarlett Johansson have been named as at least two women that Cruz tried to woo and failed in doing so. And then, almost out of nowhere, came 25-year-old Nazanin Baniati. Described by Vanity Fair as, quote, a gorgeous, petite, Iranian-born woman in her mid-20s who had been raised in London and whose mother was also a Scientologist. Baniati had plans to go to medical school after graduating from UC Irvine with honors. She was an accomplished violinist, an avid volunteer, and seemingly perfect. Of course, there were a few concerns, concerns that the church moved quickly to address with her. Baniati had been told that she, quote, had been selected for a very hush-hush mission that would entail meeting dignitary, dignitaries around the world, and she would be helping to make the world a better place. How being forced to dye her hair, get her braces removed six months early, and manipulated through reading her then-boyfriend's auditing reports in order to force a breakup helped prepare her to making such a positive mark on the world? I'm not sure. But it's what she was told. It's what she did. Shelley oversaw this whole process, including buying $5,000 worth of clothes for the Scientologist in charge of Baniati's auditing assigning this new mark the project of writing a 20-page single-spaced essay on, quote, what she wanted and needed in her life in terms of a partner, family, and work to satisfy her goals and aspirations. And he even took Baniati to Saks and Burberry after she was read her former boyfriend's auditing reports to, quote, make her feel better about the breakup. There were confidentiality agreements given and signed, though it has been claimed that Baniati was never able to read the agreements in their entirety and she was never given copies of them after asking for such documents numerous times. In the first week of November that year, the stage was set. Baniati was flown out to New York where she initially discovered the secret project that she was part of, dating Tom Cruise. At first, Scientology insiders claimed that, quote, Baniati was incredulous that Scientology would set her up. She was shocked and she felt manipulated but she was also flattered that Tom Cruise would have wanted to know so much about her and then shown up to meet her. Their first date included sushi at Nobu and then skating at Rockefeller Center, which Cruise had had shut down to the public. Conveniently, Baniati had shared in an auditing session just before being flown to New York that sushi and ice skating were components of what she thought would make the perfect first date. 
it was bliss at first. They were declared a couple almost immediately after meeting on that November day, with Cruz even telling her, quote, I've never felt this way before on the night of their first meeting, which they spent together. For the first few weeks of their relationship, Bonnie Hottie was more or less isolated, barred from speaking to anyone, including her own family, and her mother was a Scientologist herself. She spent two to three hours a day every day purging herself of, quote, negative thoughts about Tom. Her hair was once again found to be lacking, at least in Cruz's estimation, and he also demanded that she have her incisor teeth filed down. Maureen Orth reported that, quote, the degree of control Boniati was subjected to by Cruz and the organization was mind-boggling. And yet, by the end of November, the death knell had already rung. After a disastrous trip to Colorado together, including a dangerous fall off of a snowmobile that left her bruised and making the unforgivable mistake of saying, excuse me, more than once to a rapidly speaking David Miscavige himself, the relationship was effectively over, though it inexplicably dragged on for a few more weeks. Despite these missteps of Colorado, Boniati was moved into Cruz's LA home, and her auditing sessions were increased tenfold at the celebrity center in town. Cruz more or less, though, ignored her, despite the fact that she had moved in with him. And when Boniati asked why he just wouldn't break up with her, she was told that Cruz was, quote, not to be disturbed, and she was then shipped out to the Flag Building in Clearwater, Florida, the superpower building attached to the seemingly deadly Fort Harrison. While there, it was reported in Vanity Fair that for over two months, Boniati, quote, was to scrub toilets with a toothbrush on her hands and knees, clean bathroom tiles with acid, and dig ditches in the middle of the night. She was also harangued for hours and made to confess what a horrible human being she was. After that, she was sent to hawk L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetic book on Street Corner. The rise and fall of one woman at the center of Scientology was complete and it had taken less than six months to destroy her. And by April, 2005, the next potential Mrs. Cruz had already been lined up. Katie Holmes had entered stage left with an audition tape that had captured the church executive's attention as soon as they saw it. The entire Tomcat dating relationship as the media dubbed them, was a mere seven weeks long from April 2005 to June 2005. Because before two months of the calendar had passed, Tom Cruise went from jumping on Oprah's sofas, declaring his love for Katie Holmes, to getting down on one knee at the Eiffel Tower. By that fall, they announced that Katie was pregnant six months after meeting each other. Warning bells were going off within the heads of the church's higher-ups. Sure, their shining star of Tom Cruise certainly seemed happy, but his behavior was attracting unwanted attention to the church, a church that was still desperate to claw their way back from the dangerously negative media attention of the late 90s. Mike Rinder led a campaign to, quote, try to kill pending Los Angeles Times and Rolling Stone stories on Scientology, both of which ran, as well as an NBC Dateline piece planned on Scientology. Rinder, quote, estimated that he met 10 times during a five-year period with Cruz's people to demand that they get unfavorable stories about Scientology killed. 
and Cruz's continued bonkers behavior wasn't helping matters. There was the poorly received interview that he did with Matt Lauer on the Today Show, where he, quote, disparaged the use of psychotropic drugs and criticized Brooke Shields for taking medication to relieve postpartum depression. Whereas Miscavige saw it as a win, a sign that Cruz, quote, would not back off his beliefs. Other executives thought it was a disaster. What with Cruz, quote, appearing on national TV, acting like a Looney Tune. There was another individual making small but worrisome waves as well when it came to Tomcat's apparently full seam ahead relationship. Katie's father, Martin Holmes. The Holmes family has long identified themselves as Catholic and Katie was raised in the faith. When she began dating Cruz though, she quickly began receiving training about her new boyfriend's so-called religion and espoused in more than one interview that she was quote, excited to learn more about Cruz's faith. Soon after this declaration, it seemed that anywhere Katie went, so too did Jessica Rodriguez, a well-known auditor within the church. Martin Holmes, however, wasn't so sure about any of this because not only was he a member of the Catholic church, but Martin Holmes was also a respected and meticulous divorce lawyer. Even before Katie's pregnancy was announced, Martin Holmes had allegedly quietly put out the word that he wanted to know, quote, how his daughter could escape Scientology's clutches. Upon the engagement and subsequent pregnancy news, though, tactics were changed. Before the wedding, Martin Holmes had reverted to his new tactic for his youngest daughter with his own skill set. He allegedly, quote, negotiated a prenuptial agreement that reportedly filled five bankers' boxes. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes were married in the Scientology service at the Odescalchi Castle in Italy on November 18th, 2006. They had known each other for a year and a half, and their daughter, Suri, had been born on April 18th, 2006, just a few months before the wedding and on the day which was the anniversary of their first ever date. The couple was married with David Miscavige himself serving as Cruise's best man. While the rest of the guest list consisted of some of Hollywood and Scientology's biggest names, like Leah Remini and Will and Jada Pinkett-Smith, Katie's own parents did not attend the wedding. Katie's father allegedly claimed that he could not, in good faith and because of his own Catholic faith, attend a Scientology ceremony. Both parents had reportedly been unhappy that the two were following through on the seemingly whirlwind romance, with Martin reportedly, quote, clashing with control freak Cruz during the engagement. There were other oddities during the wedding itself, though. There was a roughly 20-minute period at the beginning of the ceremony where guests wondered where Katie was, as Cruz simply stood at the altar by himself, wearing a, quote, everything is great look plastered on his face, even as the crowd grew uncomfortable, according to Leah Remini's memoir. At one point, Remini's friend and guest, Jennifer Lopez, apparently leaned over and asked, do you think Katie's coming? As the wait simply dragged on. Katie did eventually show up, but shit, as they say, only got weirder. Take, for instance, part of the vows that crew made during the non-legally binding ceremony. Quote, girls need clothes and food, tender happiness and frills, a pan, a comb, a cat, is the line that stuck out to most guests. Attendees were gifted 
chrome heart sunglasses from a London-based store that cost $550 each. The minister who performed the ceremony, Norman Starkey, was actually the executor of L. Ron Hubbard's estate. For all the strangeness lurking underneath the surface of the wedding, no one could deny that it was a beautiful event. This was supposed to be the it moment for Scientology. This, the crowning jewel of David Miscavige's plan to authenticate Scientology in the eyes of the world with his prized collector items of Tom Cruise and this young, beautiful wife. Except there was one thing missing and it seemed that Leah Remini was the only one who noticed, noticed enough to ask about it. Where's Shelley? Despite all of the rehabbed PR that the church seemed to be gaining from the public, what was happening inside the church and to the highest ranks of executives was an entirely different story because David Miscavige was on the warpath. For all the times that he had seemed near to breaking, it was clear that following the disastrous affair with Nazanin Baniati, something within him had snapped. And those surrounding him were the ones to feel his wrath. It was in the very early 2000s, 2003 or 2004, that the whole first made its entrance into Scientology vernacular. The Church of Scientology's gold base is located in the California town of San Jacinto. Gold Base is seen as the de facto international headquarters for the church, and it's outfitted as such. It is said that, quote, the heavily guarded compound comprises about 50 buildings surrounded by high fences, topped with blades, and watched around the clock by patrols, cameras, and motion detectors. The property is bisected by a public road, which is closely monitored by the church with cameras surrounding passing traffic. Both parts of the property are surrounded by a chain-link fence topped with ultra-barrier, spikes and razor wire with motion sensors and lights. There are five heavily guarded gates into the base, three on the south side of Gilman Springs Road and two on the north. Bonnie View is the name of the mansion that Hubbard established for himself there, though he died before seeing it completed. Rocky Mountain News reported in 1986 that, quote, Bonnie View is still maintained as if Hubbard is due to turn up tomorrow, with glasses of water covered with plastic wrap, toothbrushes set out in Hubbard's multiple personal bathrooms. A full-time staff regularly launders Hubbard's clothes and cleans the property. His cars are kept in the garage with full tanks of gas and the keys in the ignition ready to be used at a moment's notice. The Religious Technology Center, known more regularly as the RTC, sits just beside Bonnie View. There are recording studios, a lake, sports facilities, the church's film production studio, in various villas studded throughout the 520 acres that make up Gold Base. Amidst all these multi-million dollar amenities, there is a pair of double wide trailers. And these trailers are what is known as the hole. It has been reported by defected members of Scientology that what first initially set Miscavige off onto the mental warpath he created for himself was the damage that the church incurred following the least Leah McPherson's death. His siege-like mentality only continued throughout the early 2000s as he facilitated the removal of Nicole Kidman and established her as an SP, and then the rise and fall of Nazanin Baniati for Cruz's carefully selected romantic partner. It's clear that Miscavige is a man used to feeling in control, and when things begin to spiral, even minutely, 
even in a manner as small as Boniati asking Miscavige to repeat himself as she did in Colorado before she was stripped of her girlfriend title. These events caused Miscavige to lash out. And he usually lashed out at those in his innermost circle most viciously. From Maureen Ort's Vanity Fair reporting, quote, scores of defectors have said that Miscavige would systematically terrorize, humiliate, and abuse Sea Org members. When he himself wasn't punching, choking, or shoving his staff, he ordered his lieutenants to do so. Many people witnessed Shelley enduring verbal abuse at the hands of her husband. Quote, I've seen him yell at her for not doing his bidding, says John Brousseau, a former Scientologist. He did admonish her. How dare you undermine what I just told them to do? You go back there and fix it right now. She would go off and eat her words. Brousseau further elaborated on how Shelley was perceived during this time. Quote, a lot of people will tell you about what a horrible bitch she was and how she was just as bad as Miscavige, which in a lot of respects is true. She was doing his bidding. But a lot of people who knew her personally will say that underneath it all, she was actually a nice person. Though she was known to have her own outbursts at time, it was clear that at her core, Shelley Miscavige meant well in every regard that her husband did not. Insiders reported that, quote, she encouraged staff to volunteer and help the local community. Whenever a Sea Org member fell ill, she was the one who made sure that the person received ample care she looked out especially for the girls who were part of the messenger's crew, the group that she had once been a part of in her own youth. Despite her role as first lady, a figure that was supposed to be intimidating, amongst the Sea Org rank, she was seen as their most valuable, quote, shock absorber. She did what she could to soften the verbal blows that Miscavige would deal out and went out of her way to carefully protect the Sea Org following one of his outbursts. Mark Headley recalled a Vanity Fair, quote, DM would come in and say, you guys fucking suck. I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you. You're going to the rehabilitation project force, the punitive re-education program. Shelly would come in five minutes or an hour later and say, okay, guys, you aren't going to the RPF. Let's figure out how we can get this done. Not only was she working in the wake of the COB's fury and temper, but she actively worked against it too. Brousseau stated that, quote, many church members had no idea just how much Shelley protected them. On the sly, she would, quote, adjust some of the church's most outrageous policies. Claire Hidley stated that whenever Miscavige's rages turned violent, quote, Shelley was the first and final line of defense. She was the only person I ever saw try and put a check on his outbursts. She was the only person I would even try to intervene. According to other Vanity Fair reports, quote, she'd try to be discreet, employing a light nudge or a soothing whisper. Other times she'd try to gently steer him out of the room. Let's go, let's not do this. There were other times when he'd hit somebody, knock them off a chair, kick them. When he'd go in for more, she would restrain him. But following the events of the late 90s and early 2000s, even Shelley was at her breaking point. Claire Headley stated that by the mid 2000s, Quote, Shelly was cowed. She was always stressed. She was never sleeping. She was just run ragged. But she was never an evil person. And I thought she really cared. It was just a god-awful situation. Marty Rathbun remembered that Shelly quietly asking him at one point if Miscavige was wearing his platinum wedding band or his gold one. 
Scientologists exchanged two rings at their weddings, and Rathbun realized what Shelley's roundabout question meant. She wanted to know if he was wearing his wedding bands at all. No one is entirely sure what precisely led to Shelley being such a shell of herself, but all anyone knows is that she had changed. Just before it was supposed to be the fairy tale wedding of Tomcat, Shelley was given a task, a task that had stumped others before her, and that was at the top of Miscavige's ever increasingly stringent demands from the inner circle of the Sea Org. In essence, he wanted to restructure the corporate board of Scientology, the org board. Shelley is said to have spent, quote, months of round the clock drafting and redrafting for this reshuffling, but nothing satisfied Miscavige. Nothing was good enough. And by all accounts, everyone at Goldbase was getting sick of Miscavige's hairpin trigger temper and increasingly volatile reactions. Tom Devoit, a former church official, claims that Shelley, quote, confided in him that her husband was losing it around this time. And then, for whatever reason, Shelley broke rank. During this time, the couple traveled for the first time together, but apart. Shelley was off at Gold Base while Miscavige traveled to LA. Many former members claimed that it was the first time that the two had ever been apart for official business. With Miscavige in LA, Shelley made two decisions without her husband's input. Two decisions that have left lingering questions about Shelley's fate over the years. Decision number one was that Shelley, quote, disseminated the revamped org board chart that she had drafted up and informed people of their new titles and duties. Decision number two was to merely box up some of Miscavige's things and move them to another unit on the gold base where Shelley was so that renovations could be completed in their living quarters. Tony Ortega reported that when Miscavige returned from LA and learned that Shelley had approved the org board and moved his belongings without his knowledge, quote, he erupted. As Vanity Fair put it, quote, within days, Shelley seemed to know she was living on borrowed time. John Broussel recalled that during this time, quote, she puttered about for maybe a week or two, being very sheepish and withdrawn, not really contributing, telling her domestic staff not to bother taking care of her, that she could make her own meals. She'd say, it's all right, and sort of be very undeserving, knowing that she was in a crap load of trouble. And suddenly, she was simply gone. Longtime household assistant Claudio Luigi reported that he was told, quote, you don't have to do Shelley's clothes anymore. She's on a special project. Valerie Haney, Shelley's former personal assistant, claimed that the last time that she saw Shelley, she was, quote, crying and entering a vehicle outside of Gold Base. It was only when, shortly after Shelley was last seen, that someone dared to ask where she was. Leah Remini at the lavish Italian wedding of Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. Everyone within the church knew it was almost unprecedented for Miscavige and Shelley to be apart, and much less to travel international distances without each other. Leah was further baffled as to why Shelley, the COB's own wife, wouldn't be at the very public and very PR-focused wedding of the church's foremost ambassador. So she asked, where's Shelley? And no one could, or would answer her. One church official allegedly told her that asking such a question was inappropriate. 
Tommy Davis, Cruz's personal auditor, is reported to have told Leah that, quote, you don't have the fucking rank to ask about Shelly. Shelly's last public appearance was in August 2007, when she attended her father's funeral. But even that was a closely guarded and heavily surveyed instance. According to Mark Headley, she was, quote, shadowed by a watchful handler while at the funeral. While in the bathroom at the service, a since-defected church member approached her, seeking guidance for their new life post-Scientology. As Headley claims, though, Shelley allegedly said, quote, listen to me, I fucked up and I'm not going to be able to help you. Since then, Shelley Miscavige has not been seen in public. And it's time to talk about where in the world that she might be. As we've already come to know, there are two truths that David Miscavige seemingly holds self-evident. That his word is law in the church and his temper, as well as its ramifications, are not to be trifled with. Which is how the hellish place that the whole has been rumored to be have become one of the most logical places that people believe Miscavige may have sent his wife. The Tampa Bay Times described the conditions of living in the hole as such in a 2013 expose. Quote, the hole became a place of confinement and humiliation where Scientology's management culture, always demanding, grew extreme. Inside, a who's who of Scientology leadership went at each other with brutal tongue lashings and even hands and fists. They intimidated each other into crawling on their knees and standing in trash cans and confessing to things that they hadn't done. They lived in degrading conditions, sleeping and eating in cramped spaces designed for office use. Members spent their nights in sleeping bags and cots crammed together on the floor. The basis for being placed in the hole was to elicit confessions from other individuals stuck in the hole and to figure out where they all had gone wrong, how they had betrayed Miscavige in the church, and thus figure out how to find their way back into his good graces. After the first few years of the whole's existence, the nature of the confessionals had taken a decidedly dark turn. Quote, by 2007, occupants of the whole were dreaming up new ways to elicit more lurid confessions. They took turns seizing the role of chief inquisitor and drill sergeant. They made their colleagues stand for hours in plastic trash cans, letting them know that they were garbage. They poured cold water over their heads and shoulders. They hung demeaning signs around their necks and screamed in their faces. There was the infamous musical chairs episode as laid out in the going clear documentary where officials such as Marty Rathbun and Mike Rinder were forced to play a violent iteration of the game with other high ranking officials as Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody droned on and the officials physically duked it out to keep themselves in the game and thus keep their titles within the church. Security guards are said to have manned the front door around the clock and the number of occupants ranged from 40 to seven. Violence became routine as colleagues threw punches into each other, into walls, and attacked each other with punches, pushes, slaps, and kicks. According to an ABC News report, quote, the food was like leftovers, slop, bits of meat, soupy kind of leftovers thrown into a pot and cooked and barely edible. The building was said to be infested with ants, and on several occasions, the electricity was turned off, causing the temperature to rise to 106 degrees Fahrenheit due to the lack of air conditioning. The windows were blocked and church guards manned the door, the only door, out. Security fences surrounding the sprawling compound. There were surveillance cameras that captured every angle and motion centers that triggered bright lights along the perimeter. 
Some of the occupants of the hole have said to include Debbie Cook, the head of the Church of Scientology Flag Service Organization, Marty Rathbun, the Inspector General of the Religious Technology Center, Wendell Reynolds, the International Finance Director, Mike Rinder, the Commanding Officer of the Office of Special Affairs, Kurt Whelan, Director of External Affairs for the Office of Special Affairs, Mark Yeager, the Commanding Officer of the Commodore's Messenger Organization, and Norman Starkey, the former captain of Hubbard's ship and the officiant for Tom Cruise's wedding. Another top-level individual who is said to have spent time, or possibly might still be inside the hole, is Heber Gents, the president of the Church of Scientology International. Gents was at one point seen as a spokesman for Scientology, but in the early 2000s, he fell from favor with Miscavige, as seems to be the habit of anyone who gets close to the COB's orbit. It has been reported that Gents was one of the first occupants of the hole, and he has not been seen in public since 2004, except for the brief, highly controlled outing for which he attended his 27-year-old son's funeral in 2012. In the summer of 2018, a family member of Jens's niece, Tammy Cook, attempted to perform a wellness check on him after hearing rumors of his declining health that had escaped the security-obsessed compound. In June of that year, she contacted the Riverside County Sheriff's Department to share her concerns and alert them that she was coming to be a part of a welfare check. Apparently, the sheriffs attempted to contact Jens on June 4th, the day before Tammy arrived, but they were told that he was at a doctor's appointment. The next day, when Tammy arrived for the welfare check on June 5th, none of the sheriffs were there to meet her as they had previously agreed. The plan was that they were to gather at the gate of Gold Base, but instead, a deputy then came out of the compound to greet her. He informed Tammy that he had already conducted the welfare check by himself, he also informed her that her uncle claimed that he did not want to see her and did not know her. Jens allegedly told the deputy that he was, quote, enjoying his retirement, though there had never been a public announcement of the president of the church retiring. While conducting the welfare check, the deputy never spoke to Jens alone, as an aide named Nettie Alcock was said to be with him at all times. The officers did not conduct a physical overview, have him stand up, or witness him walking around. They did not speak to him alone. They did not inspect his body since he had a long sleeve shirt on. However, in the subsequent police documentation, the officer concluded that, quote, Jens was in good health and was being cared for in his home. Since then, Tammy Cook has been sent numerous vaguely threatening letters from lawyers representing the church, and no one has seen Jens. On November 30th of 2020, he was to have turned 85 years old. What we can learn from this anecdote about Heber Gents is that this kind of deflection, aided by local law enforcement, is actually a pattern of Scientology's. Because a similar tactic was used when Leah Remini raised the alarm about Shelley's unexplained disappearance and eventually filed her own welfare check on Shelley in 2013. As you can imagine, the resulting, quote, investigation played out similarly. According to a Daily Beast report, quote, Remini filed a missing persons report on Shelley's behalf on August 5th, 2013, questioning whether Shelley is free or being punished by her own shortcomings. By the afternoon of August 8th, the LAPD claimed that they had made contact with Shelley and that they were closing the case, labeling it as unfounded. After making the alleged welfare check, Detective Gus Villanueva stated, quote, the LAPD has classified the report as unfounded, indicating that Shelley is not missing 
though they declined to provide any details as to the state that they found her in, where she is, or if she was in the presence of church officials. Tony Ortega later told the Daily Beast that he had, quote, talked to the cop, Lieutenant Andre Dawson, and he said that they had made contact with her. I asked him if she was in the presence of church officials, and he said, that's classified. As of right now, it has never been made public who the officer or officers were that made the alleged welfare check. And the public records of the documentation after the fact have also never been made public, though it seems pinned on Lieutenant Andre Dawson. As Leah Remini put it, quote, what matters to me is that I have not seen proof that this woman is alive or doing well, so I can give a shit what the LAPD said as their bullshit statement that they put out, because I haven't seen her face. I'm calling bullshit on it. None of this behavior should be surprising, though, when you learn how dearly Scientology holds its relationships with law enforcement. As Remini shared in an interview for her A&E show, quote, there are Scientology policies that say, safe point yourself to the area police department because then nobody will attack your good works. So it's all very pointed and calculated. They have a policy called the public image, and it says to align yourselves with real organizations and safe point them. So they're safe pointing police departments by paying them a lot of money to do off-duty work. They love bomb them with awards, and you'll see detectives and police officers in uniform giving speeches on human trafficking at the Scientology Celebrity Center. This is what they do all the time to present themselves as a group that is in line with the rest of society, and they are not. If such practices are true, the evidence does nothing except back up their existence, an existence that goes back to the mid-90s. Quote, in 1995, the Church of Scientology Celebrity Center International, located in the heart of Hollywood, became a fundraising partner for the Hollywood PD's chapter of the Police Activities League, PAL, which describes itself as a community-based crime prevention program that provides young people with positive alternatives to gangs and drugs. Celebrity Center helped PAL produce a fundraiser in February 1996 enlisting the participation and support of celebrities and raising more than $20,000. Throughout the rest of 1996, Celebrity Center sponsored a range of activities for PAL and its youth-oriented programs. This included organizing PAL's 1996 church Christmas party, funding excursions and athletic tournaments, and purchasing athletic equipment. All of that comes directly from Scientology's own Freedom Magazine. From the Daily Beast report, quote, in early 1997, in recognition of the church's continuing assistance, Hollywood PAL officers nominated Celebrity Center as Organization of the Year. This annual award is presented to one group, selected from the many civic and charitable organizations and businesses throughout the state that supports police activities league programs. And in February, out of the many organizations nominated, the Church of Scientology Celebrity Center was selected as Organization of the Year for 1996 for, quote, their outstanding contribution to their community through the LAPD Hollywood Police Activities League. The Church of Scientology's fundraising partnership with the LAPD's Hollywood Division, through PAL, continues to this day. And more unnerving is this small anecdotal nugget by way of Leah. Quote, the captain of that department, the LAPD's Hollywood division, Corey Palka, goes to the Scientology Celebrity Center often. There are pictures of him hanging at Celebrity Center. 
What we see here, my friends, seems to be nothing short of carefully orchestrated collusion. Because of the lack of public reports available about the so-called welfare check made on Shelley Miscavige, we aren't even sure which location the officers allegedly went to in order to make the welfare check. Over the years, though, theories have abounded about which of Scientology's locations that Shelley might be held at. Most former insiders don't actually believe Shelley is at the hole, at least any, not any longer. Some have theorized that she might be at the Trementina base, located near Trementina, New Mexico. According to Scientology documents, quote, the purpose of the base is to provide storage space for an archiving project to preserve Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard's writings, films, and recordings for future generations. Some believe that Shelley may have been here at one point or is still being kept there in order to be part of the tedious text-based project. Trementina is considered to be one of the most remote and secretive bases throughout all of Scientology. So while it would make sense of the fortress holding Shelley, it presents unique challenges in readily addressing public cries for proof of life. Namely, they can't just regularly trot her out. Still others believe that Shelley is being kept outside of US, US jurisdiction and is being held on the free winds, one of the still roaming ships that sails from port to port, much like the Apollo did in the 1970s. While this would be a helpful locale and that Shelley would be kept constantly on the move, that same benefit could backfire and should again, proof of life be demanded, though no one has seemingly been forced to produce such proof, even in the face of police involvement. Former insiders, though, believe they know where Shelley is being kept. Twin Peaks. The Twin Peaks compound is home to the Church of Spiritual Technology and is considered one of the most hush-hush and highest security bases that exists in the entirety of Scientology's real estate portfolio. The base is located about 120 miles outside of LA and is said to have been built to specifications from L. Ron Hubbard in order to withstand a nuclear holocaust fallout. Those who know of Twin Peaks existence are said to be at some of the highest levels within the church, knowing the most secret of the secrets. This is considered the headquarters of the archiving projects that are also performed at Trementina. While the other bases house the archive technology and teachings, it's at Twin Peaks where the recording and preserving duties are completed, a task that some consider an honor. Mike Rinder believes that this is where Shelley was, at least at one point. Speaking with Vanity Fair, he mused that, quote, for a long time, Shelley was at a property that is owned by one of the church corporations near Lake Arrowhead here in California, and she was sent there when she displeased David Miscavige. Tony Ortega agrees, quote, Mike and I are pretty positive that in 2005, once Dave had his blow up with her, he sent her up there to be a non-person. They let her out for a couple days for her father's funeral in the summer of 2007, and nobody has seen her since. I'm positive that she's still there. Twin Peaks is about as secretive a compound within Scientology as it gets. So far, there have only ever been a handful of photos taken to even prove its existence, which were unveiled in November 2013. As Dylan Gill, the former manager of the base, shared, quote, having been there, knowing how it works, it all makes sense. Where would she go to be totally gone? There, of course. But is it true? 
Is Shelley Miscavige being held at a top secret, heavily guarded Scientology base? Whether it's in the mountains of San Bernardino or floating somewhere in international waters aboard one of its ships. What is it that happened to Shelley Miscavige? In a story where there aren't many answers, you can bet there are a lot of hashtag questions to be asked. Hashtag question number one. What was it like inside the marriage between the Miscavages? When did their relationship turn from one of romance to one of business-like demeanor? What caused the shift in their marriage? Was it the disastrous bouts of PR that the church suffered during the 90s, and particularly with the various deaths that took place at the Fort Harrison Hotel? What led to Lisa McPherson's first introspection rundown in 1995? After she was declared clear, Lisa reached out for medical intervention following the November 1996 car accident. Why did she feel like she needed help? Was Lisa trying to break from the church? When Lisa arrived at the hospital, 10 Scientologists showed up and declared that she didn't want or need psychological treatment. And she eventually said the same. Why wasn't anything done to separate her from the 10 Scientologists? Could anything have been done to place her in an overnight stay against her wishes? When Lisa arrived back at the Fort Harrison Hotel, who led the second introspection rundown? How many individuals were working with Lisa's introspection rundown? In the snippet of notes that were released to the public, it stated that on December 2nd, Lisa's finances to procure the protein drinks that she was supposed to be having to supplement her diet while in the rundown had been depleted. Was Lisa still fed after this, or did the church stop feeding her because she didn't have the money to pay for anything? What actually caused the pulmonary embolism that Lisa suffered from? Lisa's autopsy report, quote, identified multiple bruises, an abrasion on the nose, lesions, and insect bites that appeared consistent with that of a cockroach. So really, what the fuck happened to Lisa McPherson while she was held at the Fort Harrison Hotel? What really happened to the other people who died under mysterious circumstances at the Fort Harrison? How did Josephus Havaneth come to be found dead in a bathtub filled with boiling water that removed his skin? Why was his cause of death listed as drowning when his head wasn't even under the water? What exactly were in the vitamin and mineral dietary supplement regimens that seemed to be prevalent in the lives of the several other people who wound up dead and or drowned by way of the Fort Harrison Hotel in the late 80s and early 90s? Was Shelley working as his assistant? Was the replacement of her importance in David's life made when Tom Cruise entered the scene? Is it true that Miscavige orchestrated the divorce between Cruise and his first wife, Mimi Rogers? None of the higher-ups in the church ever expected Cruz to fully fall in love with Nicole Kidman. Was Nicole's role in Tom Cruise's life always doomed to fail because Miscavige never warmed up to her? Given what we know of Nicole's background, her Catholic upbringing and her father's work as a psychologist, was her history with another religion and her support of psychology, were these the reasons that Tom Cruise's love life later came to be handled by church officials? Because otherwise, how in the hell had Nicole passed muster become Cruz's wife? When Nicole left the church in 1992, what was it that finally pushed her away? Was Nicole aware of the sabotage being waged against her 
from within her own home by way of the household staff who were often Scientologists reporting back to Miscavige. When did Miscavige begin his mission to get Cruz and Nicole divorced? Was Nicole aware of the church's interference with her marriage? What was the final straw that led Cruz to file for divorce? How was Cruz able to facilitate retaining sole custody of the couple's two children? What exactly was laid out in the intensively secret settlement that made the divorce final? Why was Penelope Cruz allowed to stick, allowed to stick around as Cruz's girlfriend for so long when the church knew that she wasn't going to give up her Buddhist beliefs? Since their breakup, Penelope has spoken positively about Tom, often referencing her loyalty to people who have treated her well. Are these statements genuine or are these statements born of knowing what the church might still have had on hand of her personal life from her auditing sessions? How long exactly was Nazanin Baniati prepped for before she met Tom Cruise? Even though Miscavige deemed Baniati lacking after she asked him to repeat himself a few times during the Colorado trip about three or four weeks after she first met Cruise, why did the church still move her into Cruise's house if they already didn't like her? Bonnie Adi was later moved to the Celebrity Center and then sent to Clearwater for punishment. What all happened to her while she was at the flag building? How long was she trapped in Clearwater? Is it true that their entire relationship lasted less than six weeks? Why was she never allowed to have copies of the two different confidentiality agreements that she signed? Why did Cruz refuse to break up with her himself? With the trouble that they had gone through with Nicole Kidman, how was Katie Holmes allowed to be Cruz's next girlfriend, despite having a Catholic upbringing and a father who is staunchly against Scientology? What caused the Tomcat relationship to move as quickly as it did? Was Tom following church orders and proposing to Katie within six weeks of dating? Or was he going off the rails? Was the church aware of the couple's very quick pregnancy? Was the pregnancy the reason that the marriage was allowed to move forward so quickly? How far into her auditing did Katie get? No one is sure what exactly led Katie to spring her surprise divorce filing. So what was the final straw for Katie in determining that she had had to break from Cruz and the church? Sources close to Katie claim that she, quote, had a reason to fear that Cruz would abduct Surrey and also feared intimidation from the church before she filed for divorce. What exactly caused her to feel this way? It has been rumored that Katie had been laying the groundwork for her divorce for a very long time before she filed on June 29, 2012. So how long had she been planning her and Suri's exit from Cruz's lives and the church's control? Is it true that she hired a team of lawyers from various states in order to combat any claim that Cruz might have tried to file in the different states that he held properties in? Katie filed for divorce on June 29th, and by July 9th, 10 days later, the couple had already settled their divorce. How was this done so quickly, and what exactly did Katie and Cruz agree to in order to sweep the divorce away so quietly? When was the last time Cruz saw his daughter, Suri? While all of this was happening with Scientology's golden boy, Shelley had already been missing for close to six years. Was the very uncontrolled public outburst that Cruz was making about his relationship 
at all a factor in Miscavige removing Shelley from the public eye. Why wasn't Shelley brought to the Tomcat wedding? Was she in the hole at the time? Was the final straw before her disappearance her decision to redo the org board in a bid to make Miscavige happy? Was Shelley right to be suspicious about Miscavige's fidelity to their marriage? If true, where exactly did Shelley go after her assistant claimed to see her crying figure put into a car outside of the gold base? Was Shelley sent to the hole like other high-level church executives? If so, how long was she there for? Who was there in the hole with her? When was Shelley removed from the hole, if at all? Why was Shelley allowed to attend her father's funeral? Was it a bid to silence scrutiny about her well-being? Where has Shelley been sent to after that last public appearance? Has Shelley been kept at one church base or has she been moved throughout the years to avoid prying eyes? Did the LAPD actually conduct a welfare check on her? If they did, why have they remained so secretive about the meeting? Did they actually speak with Shelley Miscavige or did they speak with someone posing as Shelley? Is this the same type of behavior they fell for when conducting the welfare check on Hebert Jens? Why hasn't the church released photographic or video evidence of Shelley Miscavige since 2007 to at least quell the suspicions swirling around her? Do they still have Shelley imprisoned on one of their bases? Is Shelley able to speak for herself? Or is Shelley no longer able to speak at all? Where is Shelley Miscavige at this time? Is Shelly Miscavige even alive? Or is she dead? Another victim in the long line of people who have fallen prey to the Church of Scientology. And if Shelly Miscavige is dead, then again, where is she? And what exactly happened to her? When it comes to the Church of Scientology, there's no easy way about telling its story. It's as convoluted a tale as any I've researched and even told. It's a winding yarn that begins with a man who loved to lie and found his skill set in manipulating the people around him through cult-like behavior. It diverts to the young rough and tumble kid from Philly who rose through the ranks and declared himself leader of the church through something not unlike a coup. And it diverts off into various offshooting anecdotes about brainwashed celebrities, unexplained accidents, mysterious deaths, and the ever-present factor of unyielding control. And when someone threatens that unyielding control, questions the manipulation, shakes their head to dislodge some of the brainwashing, well, they too become classified parts of the church's story, filed away under such things like those very same unexplained accidents, the mysterious deaths, and the disconnected individuals shunned in a way that is all-encompassing. As I relate in the first part of this story, a former high-ranking official within the church mused that the closer you got to David Miscavige, the harder you'd fall on the way down. Who knew such a fate could have befallen his own wife, the first lady of Scientology? The tragedy here though, is that Shelley Miscavige didn't get to defect from the church. We don't know if she got to have that opportunity of witnessing for herself the realization that this church, this cult that she had been a part of for essentially her entire life, that she didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Because even at the end of all this, 
at the end of our convoluted, darkly intricate, purposely complex tale, we don't know what happened to Shelley Miscavige after August 2007. We certainly have a better idea about what happened leading up to her absence from the Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes wedding. And we know that she was seen at her father's funeral under heavy guard and under stranger circumstances for this so-called outing. But after that, we don't know. We don't know if she was fighting. We don't know if she went willingly. We don't know what has become of her. I like to think that Shelley fought. I like to think that she started to recognize the dangerous manipulation going on around her. I like to think that she began to take the first steps to better the organization from the inside. But I'm also no fool. And I realize what pipe dreams those hopes are for this woman born into and of as insidious an organization as there has ever been. Perhaps that's why we don't know what has become of Shelley Miscavige. As Mark Headley put it in Vanity Fair, quote, she's probably the one person who could just end it tomorrow. If she just walked away from the whole craziness and said, okay, this is where all the fucking bodies buried. This is what he did with this. This is what he did with that. Let's fucking burn it down. It would be done. If there's something that the Church of Scientology does well, though, it's silence. Ensuring it, enforcing it, coercing it, demanding it. Silence is as much a doctrine of the church as is the belief in aliens and neat bodies and the lies spun by a man drunk on his megalomania, rum, and pills. John Brousseau, who worked closely with Miscavige and Shelley, told Leah Remini that he believes Shelley will never appear in public again. He goes so far as to say that, quote, David Miscavige will do everything he can to keep her wherever she is, until she dies. And for the last 14 years, that's what the church has seemingly done. They have kept Shelley Miscavige hidden away. Alive or dead, who can truly say? Certainly, there is that one unyielding aspect. And no, it's not control. It's silence. You just have to wonder what the silence actually means when it comes to whatever it is that has happened to Shelley Miscavige. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you're liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. I will not be back here next week as I am taking this week off to recoup and rejuvenate after the intense labor of love that this Shelley Miscavige series has proven to be. This is truly as intense a topic as I've ever researched. So I'm gonna take some R&R for myself, which I hope no one will begrudge me for. If you're looking to fill your days with some DA, even during this short break, please consider joining the DA Patreon crew, where you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast to see what level of content might be up your alley of interest. If you're not sure where, what level you'd like to start at, there's a new Patreon level, and it only costs $1. You can support Dawn, the work that I do here, for just a dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode and have access to exclusive content on the Patreon. While you're waiting for the next episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at Dark as Hell Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own 
over to me at darkasshellpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can head on over to darkasshellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you back here, not next week, but on Monday, March 1st, ready to get dark as hell all over again.